1: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Vivi Lacks. She's a social and cultural historian, Yiddishist, performer, and associate research fellow at Birkbeck University of London. She's the author of the new book Whitechapel Noise Jewish Immigrant Life in Yiddish Song and Verse London eighteen eighty four to nineteen fourteen, published by Wayne State University Press in twenty eighteen. Uh, so, Vivi, thanks very much for being with us today. Hi, Mark. So, traditional Hi. traditional new books in Jewish studies, first question. How did you come to write this book?
0: Actually, I came a at sort of roundabout route, I guess, because I was teaching at the time in schools, um, something completely different, and I was performing um, with bands and was finding a lot of songs about London, and the interesting thing for me was in these songs, there was so much... What, what I felt was like historically significant material. And um, so when I went back to doing a PhD, I thought as I was reading Anglo-Jewish history, I felt like they had not used any um, of the Yiddish sources. And if they had used some, and some people had used a bit, there was no consistent use of Yiddish sources. So, And I was really surprised at that. And I was sort of like thought that there's, there's loads and loads there which could give us a much richer and fuller and more of a history from below because the songs that I was coming across were from popular culture. So I felt that there was a huge gap that would be a very, very interesting project to engage with and have a look at what these Yiddish texts around popular culture, not just songs, but also poetry would tell us about that culture. So um, that's how I got involved with it and then got hooked.
1: Yeah, fantastic. All right, so um, let's talk a little bit about um, London in 1884 and 1914, sorry, to 1914 in this period. Just give us a little brief overview of what Jewish immigrant life was like in, in this period.
0: Well, the thing about this period that is particularly important is it was a huge change of, for the Jewish community. The Jewish community prior to this time um, was a small, very established community, mainly middle class with a small upper class and a small working class. But the majority of Jews were middle class. They had got emancipation and they were becoming settled into Britain and um, taking on all sorts of professional roles um, and roles in public life. And what happened in the 1880s with the big waves going across from Eastern Europe, mainly to America, but also coming to Europe, was the nature of that community really changed. So we had a lot of Jews that were very, very poor coming from Eastern Europe, coming over to try and get a better life, to come get more economic security and to get jobs, and also to escape some of the violence that there was in Eastern Europe. So the... Established Jewish community were confronted with this situation where they had loads of people coming in. They were their co-religionists, and they needed to do something about it. And in fact, they did. They poured money into supporting them. Um, and but the Jewish community and the 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 the, the um, numbers that were coming in were really like larger than that they could support. And and these people they came into the East End of London into Whitechapel, which was already very crowded, and there was a very competitive job market, and it was really difficult to find work and to make enough money to 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 to, to, to feed yourself. And I mean, it wasn't just the Jews. I mean, there was a, a big working class English community that were really struggling in the East End of London, and. So what happened to that community as they came in, because they were in a small area in East London and they were speaking Yiddish, what happened was that a very vibrant Yiddish culture got set up, not quite as big as it was, for example, on the Lower East Side in New York. but essentially very vibrant establishing lots of yiddish newspapers yiddish publishing so the community there with with restaurants and with theaters um, and with a lot of like if you would have seen the walls it would have been plastered with Yiddish posters so it's a very vibrant community that's set up there, but a community that's really struggling. And one of the things that they're struggling to do is get out of the East End, get out of poverty and to, to, to sort of like raise themselves as, as quickly as they can, because it was, it was a very difficult time for people. So that, if you like, is the background to what's going on. And then, of course, there were lots of connections with the host community and the British sweating system of sweatshops and the difficulties of work and, and they sort of in some ways slotted in to that and in some ways were a little bit tangential to it but they sort of hit this host community um with a brand new culture and they were hit the immigrants with this culture that was really unfamiliar to them so there was a lot of what I call noise going on where people are um, discussing and arguing and trying to find themselves and trying to work out who they are in this new place. And, of course, there's loads and loads of um of arguments that are happening between the anglo Jews who were established and the immigrant community they 've got different sort of religious ways of doing things the anglo jews have got very large synagogues and the the, the, the immigrant community like. Like praying in chevras and stiebles, these small little prayer rooms. And there are big differences in, 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 in what they eat and what they wear and how they go about things and what jobs they're doing. So there's, there's a lot of conflict between those communities. And there's also conflict ideologically that people are coming with different politics and that that is clashing. So there's people coming with strong radical politics to a Britain that is very accepting of it and of those people. Um, coming to Britain, but in fact it really clashes there with other ideologies that are not so radical or that are religious and so on. So you get all this, what I'm calling, noise of this clash, this clash of culture and this clash of of of, of class difference.
1: Yeah, great. So we might, um, yeah, take it from that... Uh that uh, idea of uh, clashing in terms of class difference. Uh, So you could tell us a little bit about Jewish socialist position as union activists um, and how poetry was important to them.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's very interesting at this time that the main way that people are communicating to their public is through newspapers. And there was... Um, a growing Yiddish press that was happening. And the very first Yiddish press was a radical press set up by the socialists, essentially who came over just saying, you know, how are we going to engage with the workers? And this was the way they chose to do it. The main person at this time was a man called Morris Vinchevsky, who came over to Britain in 1879 and by the mid-1880s was becoming very, very active. He later got called the Zeda, the grandfather of Jewish socialism, and he became an important figure. What he's remembered for is as a poet. But in fact, he was an editor and he translated material and he wrote um, articles and features. And, and he did uh, wrote a huge amount of stuff, including a lot of satirical material. material. But for the socialists, poetry was a real strategy. And in his memoirs, in fact, Minchevsky says after the second um, edition of um, Der Polische Jiedel, the Polish Jew, which was the first um, left-wing Yiddish newspaper, he said, but we don't have poetry and we needed poetry. So poetry was seen as something that was really accessible for people and that if you put it on the page and it was eye-catching and it was short and it was, it was accessible in a different way to longer articles. And he had no one to write poetry, so he started doing it himself. Um, his first few attempts are pretty ropey and he got really ribbed about it by some of the other socialists. But in fact, what happened was he really developed as a writer, not as a a, a really aesthetic writer in terms of creating poetry, but in terms of creating verse that was very strong and powerful in its message and really drew people in, he was extremely successful. And that um, strategy of using poetry is not something that's that, that, that only the Jews were doing, the immigrant Jews, but in fact it really connects to some things that were going on in the socialist community in Britain generally where William Morris, who was a very well-known figure who was um, uh, an arts and crafts um, artisan and, and artist, um, but was also a very strong socialist, he was also writing poetry and they're writing sort of for the some of the same audiences and writing quite similar things. And the socialists felt that, um, that they well they used poetry in a way to look at all sorts of different types of of ideas that were either socialist ideas or ideas around poverty or um, telling stories or anything that they could think of to engage people. Vinczewski said in his memoirs, I will do anything to be a vecker, an awakener. And that was his really strong point that he wanted to, he said, to shine a strong light or dig the worker in the ribs. And so it's quite paternalistic. But that was really his attempt to use poetry and all sorts of other bits of writing as a way of, 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 of actually doing that and getting his communication out there.
1: Yeah, great. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about London's Yiddish theatre and music halls during this period.
0: Okay, so in this book, the Yiddish sources that I found when I started looking um for sources, and from eighteen eighty-four to nineteen fourteen, and I looked in all the newspapers I could find at anything written in verse. Um, and I found a huge amount of material. I found like four hundred different texts, of which a hundred get into this book. But the texts fell into three genres, and the first genre I've talked about was the way that the socialists use poetry, and there's lots and lots of that. The second genre was um, not so much in the papers but in other publishing, so there were song books and song sheets, and there were lots and lots of songs published to be sung in the Yiddish music hall. Now, these songs, some of them are sort of very generic songs. Some of them are songs that came from Eastern Europe and some of them are songs that um, came out of the States. But many of them relate very specifically to London. They mention London places, they mention people, they mention events going on. So they give us little hints and nuances to what was important to people, what they were arguing about, what they were laughing at, and what they were crying about essentially um and the sort of there's a historical chapter in the book that looks at the the london yiddish music hall and the london yiddish music hall has not been written about before and the sources for this mainly come from the newspapers from reviews from articles and it was a contentious place just like the english music hall was also a contentious place it was a contentious place because the sort of things that people were putting on in the music hall were edgy, naughty, silly, as well as things that were quite politically astute. Um, there were things that was the community or the Anglo-Jews might have felt were simply embarrassing, or the, the the community's dirty linen. Um, so there's a lot of material being talked about and being talked about very passionately. So either passionately enough to be telling stories that people are, are like deeply moved by, or telling very silly, sexy little gems that people are laughing at and giggling at. And it gives a sense also of who the audience were, that a large audience were young men. And people were coming over in waves from Eastern Europe. The biggest um, sort of person who was coming over was were, were young men in their in their maybe late teens and their 20s and often unmarried. And even that some of those that were married were coming before their families, and they needed entertaining, so you have a sense that you've got all these young people there were obviously there were young women as well, but the largest constituent was young men and you've got all these people coming to the music hall needing entertaining and um so a lot of the material is very centered on that, and it gives you a real sense of. Like where the community is at and what's going on. And even songs that are quite similar to the English music hall often have an edge that's very much about the London Jews, so the Jewish immigrants. And um, I give in the book um, a new history of that because it's a history that has not been told and is um, a very engaging history.
1: Great. So in the second half of your book, you go on to analyse the lyrics of some of these songs um, to reveal hidden histories of Jewish London. So tell us a bit about how these lyrics reveal connections to a transnational Yiddish-speaking world.
0: Okay. Um, So... There are two overarching themes that run across the book or overarching perspectives. The book is <clears throat> split into – I've split the three themes into – sorry, I've split the um, the texts into three themes, and that's politics, sex, and religion. But there are two overarching um, perspectives, and one of them is, is anglicisation. And anglicisation is the way the lyrics, although they're written in Yiddish, what they tell us about Britain and what they encourage in terms of engagement with the host country, with Britain, with being British. The second theme is that of transnationalism, because at the same time as showing very much about Britishness, they also engage with a wider Yiddish-speaking world. And I think the easiest way to explain this is I'm going to give you an example. So there's an example of... um, a poem that was written um actually by Morris Finchewski called London by Nacht, London at Night. And this poem tells you about streetlights. It's a poem about streetlights and what they see. And they see all the walls and the cobbled streets and the London hospital, but what they don't see is the homeless and the unemployed and the new immigrant who's really struggling. And it says that these these streetlights are like the London committee who just shine and shine and don't feel the, the poverty and the shoe that pinches and the difficulties that people are going through. And it's really quite a powerful um, uh, poem that well, was in fact put, put to music at the time although we don't anymore have that music and the interesting thing about this is first of all it's about London it's called London by Nacht and it's, it, it tells about what is happening on the ground in London however there's also a transnational element that's very interesting so firstly Vinczewski says that this song this poem is written after a poem by um, a writer called Miatlev so he's saying Noch Miatlev. So it's it's based on a poem by Miatlev, which is called Fonarichi, which is streetlights. However, Miatlev's poem is not particularly political. It talks also about what streetlights see and what they don't see. And what they don't see is a couple in love and someone who's lost their love. And, they're sort of social things rather than political. So what he's doing is he's taking something else, which is a very well-known, um, he said, that Miatlev, even if people didn't know the name of the author, would have known his poem. So he's taking that to use that um, as a way of um, engaging with something more local. However, if you do that, if you take something from somewhere else, then it has the resonances of that, and it also has the structure and the the, uh, the poetic qualities of that. So that's in one way of it creating a transnational feel to it. But the other one is in a way even more interesting in that London by Nacht was republished in New York. And in New York, you couldn't really call it London by Nacht. So they changed the name to Die Lempelach, The street lights, um, And they couldn't use the word the London Committee because that also wouldn't make sense. They changed it to the New Yorker Achtenstrittleit, the New York 8th Street people, um, folk. So that's like the Lower East Side. But what you can say in terms of transnationalism is if you're taking a song, it's exactly the same song other than those changed words. Then what you can say is the immigrant experience in one place is similar enough. So the immigrant experience in the other place to be able to, 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 to then reproduce that same, that same poem, that same song. So I think that's sort of that wonderful paradox that this stuff creates, which is that they're both very, very local and at the same time, they're really transnational and that that sort of interplay between the two and sometimes the tension between the two makes them very, very rich. And means that when I go to places, I go to Canada or I go to the States and I give a talk and people come up to me afterwards and they say, it was the same here. And I think it's very interesting. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was extremely similar. And so these these songs do have sort of a much broader life than just um, the life of one local song.
1: Brilliant. So, um, you touched on it briefly before, but tell us a bit more about the sexual content of these Yiddish music hall songs.
0: So, it, it's very interesting um, because sex comes up in the songs all the time. Now, out of the songs I found, I probably found about, mm, I don't know, a couple of hundred songs. About 80 of them were particularly about London. Out of those 80, um, 55 of them mention sex. So they either mention sex before marriage or and courtship or they mention sex um, uh, during marriage and um, having affairs with people or they mention sex, um, domestic violence or sexual abuse or they talk about prostitution. There's an awful lot of... Um, Material that talks in some way about sexual contact between men and women. And you could say that um, this is surprising that you have got so much uh, material about sex, but of course, what we're thinking of is to keep those boys um, in the music hall um, entertained. And in fact, there are a number of situations in britain that comes up in the british press in english um where there is violence in the music hall there's gang activity and so you what you have to also see is up there in the gallery you've got boys who are drunk who are shouting things out there's noise there's and at the same time as that you've got sitting there um down in the stalls families there are children there um there are men and women it's a very very mixed bag so when you've got sex in songs you have to make sure that you're entertaining the boys but you've also got to make sure that you're not um doing anything that's going to get it uh uh, um thrown out of the theater because it's it's too rude and so you've got to use lots of techniques in order to do that. So you have nuance and you have sort of cheeky little asides and you have double play. So th- that's coming up all the time. One of the key ways this is done, both in the English music hall and in the Yiddish music hall, is the, the 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 stock character of the lodger. And the lodger becomes this, in the English music hall, this used a little bit. In the Yiddish music hall, it's used a huge amount. And the lodger in American um, it's called border. We didn't use that word in English in England. We use the word lodger, so it's not someone from lodge. Um, and the, the lodger is, is is sort of like a plaything for the landlady. You're lodging in someone's house, and so you've got this dalliance going on with the landlady, or you've got a lodger who's who's quite savvy and is is playing around as well. But you, but it's always in order to talk about something else. And that's what was particularly interesting in the Jewish, in the Yiddish music hall. So in the English music hall, when you've got the lodger, you've got a funny story and everybody's laughing. In the Yiddish music hall, you've got a funny story and everybody's laughing, but they're also going, but yes, there are real issues about lodging in London and there are really issues about immigration and it brings those up. Not just the lodger, but there are other ways as well. I'll give you another example. So there's a song called Won't You Come Home, soragittel? So this song, Won't You Come Home, soragittel?" was written in around 1903, maybe 1902. It says on it to be sung to the tune of won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. Now, Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey is a ragtime tune and this is a parody of it. Or it's a parody, right? It's, it, it's just different words to it. And Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey is the story of Bill Bailey going out gallivanting with other women and his wife trying to get him to come home daheim, Sora Gittel is completely different because we're swapping Bill Bailey, and we're putting Sora Gittel, Sarah, yeah. So we have a woman going out gallivanting, and she's gallivanting in Regent Street, in Regent Street, um, and she's going into pubs and she's seen kissing men. In fact, she's seen kissing a um a Shogazuntergoy, a a gentile man in a pub, um, and we've got our husband at home saying, come on home, sorry, Gittel, don't make me so embarrassed. And what you look at, you say, okay, you've just got a funny, silly song that everybody's singing in the music hall and people are laughing at. But there's more going on than that. And I think that's what's particularly important to look at. That If you've got a man who's looking very silly on stage and is like making himself into a laughing stock, then the question you have to ask is who's laughing at him and why? And what's going on? And why is it important for the audience? What is happening there? So what we can say is the music hall is a place that you want like cathartic experience. It's a place that where people are laughing and they're crying and they're shouting and they're eating and they're, they're, they're having cathartic experiences. So who's laughing at this man who's trying to get his wife, who's gallivanting about to come home? and is it a realistic situation well clearly i mean maybe this sort of thing happened whether it was realistic um, or not it wouldn't have been happening all the time it's something that makes people laugh so why are men laughing at this so we have to think of the situation for a man in the music hall. let's say he's come over from eastern europe because he wants to find a job um and he's really struggling and he's finding it really hard to feed, feed his family so he's got a wife and children it's really difficult um so what does he do? His wife goes out to work as well, maybe. So now you've got two incomes coming in, and it's still not enough because it's re- because women's pay is appalling and they're really struggling. So they take in a lodger. So you get a bit more money coming in. But the situation is, is that a man who was the breadwinner is now not the breadwinner. He's now a partial breadwinner. He's now not able to f- fulfil his role, his function. He's feeling pretty bad about himself. And he needs a place to go and feel better about that. Now, if you go to the music hall and you see on stage someone who you think you're in a bad position, you see someone in so much a worse position and you laugh. Okay, so you've got a cathartic reaction. And what about women? So women are also working terribly hard and they're looking after families and the home. And they come to the music hall and they see a woman on stage who is gallivanting about being free. And having a good time and not having responsibilities or at least like relinquishing her responsibilities and again you laugh at the idea of the preposterousness of that situation so what it does is this song that could just be ignored by everyone and seen as a, a silly little musical song actually has something very poignant to say about the the whole hall, um, the whole immigrant experience
1: Right. So, in your last two chapters, you look particularly at religious language and ideas. Tell us a bit about this.
0: Okay. So, the third genre, the first genre is is socialist songs, and then the second genre is the musical songs. The third genre is satirical writing. Um, and a lot of this satirical writing which comes up in other places is is about religion. But Everybody is actually writing about religion. The socialists write about religion because they're writing about um, atheism and why people should not believe in God. They write about um, the the structures that they know. So they've all been – a lot of the – socialist writers have been to Jewish seminaries, to yeshivas. Um, they know Hebrew, they know the texts, and they're engaging with that. And they want to show that they know that stuff, and they're still rejecting it. And they're writing satire um, about that. The music hall writers, it's really fascinating how they engage with religion, because they're looking at both the the um, difficulty of maintaining a religious um, life in Britain, but also the deep sadness at losing some of the religious life. They're really not engaging with being religious per se. They're engaging with the problems of religion, you might say. And But finally, there are these satirical writers who are using um, festivals and, for example, sukkahs or which is the festival of tabernacles or um, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, the the fast day um, of the Day of Atonement. And they're using these structures to talk about other things, to talk about foibles in the community. Um, And there's also a very, very interesting poem that was written about um, which is from a very, a particularly religious perspective. And I'll just look at that for one moment. It actually is a poem that does not have a title and has an awful lot of verses. And it's about religious teachers. It's about religious teachers um, <clears throat> and when they start teaching in the year and when they finish and if they're teaching the older children or the younger te- children, they have slightly different term dates and how much they get paid. and I mean, it's extraordinary. You're sort of there going like, why is there a poem about this? And then they talk about it, the poem talks about how religious teachers are not teaching just religious children. They're teaching children who whose parents have already stopped being religious. And these children are only coming because their parents feel if we don't give them some religious tuition, they're going to lose it completely because we aren't giving them enough of that perspective so they're coming along and they're not taking it seriously enough. And it's a real complaint. And it's the, the first line of it. It's really called cool, like the, the teacher's cry, really, his cry of of anguish at what is happening to Judaism. That as Anglicisation, as people are getting more English, they're losing their Judaism and they're becoming um just that they're paying lip service to Judaism by sending them to these religious schools. So you, so it's incredibly an eye-opening um, little satirical um, bit of poetry. But I'll give you one more example. this is an example from a music hall song called Fregnit kein Kachanus. This is England. Don't ask silly questions. This is England. And it's a particularly interesting song because again, it's a silly song, but this song, says a huge amount about religion. Each verse engages in a different way with religion. And it's a story about a man coming over and he has got he wears his black hat, he's got his side curls, he's got a beard, and he comes over and he has difficulty maintaining his religious standards. And one of the reasons is that if he wants to work um, as a tailor, you're working in a sweatshop. If you're working for a Jewish master, you may be able to get Sabbaths and the holidays off, but if not, you can't and you have to work on the Sabbath, on Shabbat. And that is actually then an extremely difficult situation because you're put in a situation where you're forced to relinquish your religion in order to survive. The second verse talks about being, about being a lodger and being seduced by the landlady. What that really brings up is how Mores in Britain, how you're a victim of something, how you're a victim of Englishness and what is changing around you, and you're feeling like this plaything, this like out of control of what's happening to you and what's happening to your religious life. And the third verse talks about how the synagogues in Britain are like churches and that everybody, it's so decorous and it's nothing like the sort of religion that you're used to. And so again, there's another sort of disconnect in religion in Britain. And so from what is essentially a very funny little song, a ditty that was famous and was sung by Ura Naga, who was a, a well-known at the time singer on the Yiddish stage. So a song that's sung by him actually tells us some very crucial things about religion and to an extent splits them up into giving us a real sense of the debate, of the argument, of the noise. This is what people are engaging with. This is what people are arguing about and bantering about and getting ferociously angry with each other about.
1: Fantastic. Well, that's a great place to end, I think. So um, thanks very much for talking to us um, about your book today, Uh, Vivi. Before we let you go, uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on next?
0: OK, yeah. So I'm working on two things, which are, one is quite connected and one not at all, really. So one of the things I'm looking at is I've, I'm a Yiddish Book Centre translation fellow this year. And I'm going to be translating, I'm in the middle of translating, three writers who are writing short stories about London in Yiddish um, in the 30s and 40s. So a bit later. And they're, um, they're all very different. Lisky, Kaiser and Brown. And uh, Lisky is writing very serious stuff about ideologies around fascism and communism. And Kaiser's writing about foibles in the community from quite a religious perspective. And Katie Brown is writing um, very funny short stories about often around domestic dramas. Um, so I'm going to be translating them, and that will come out at some point as a book. And it will be like really giving a sense of. Of, of Britain at that time, just hitting the Second World War. And the second thing I'm working on is I'm going to be working on uh, composing a song cycle of some of Vinczevsky's material about London because he writes a whole load of ballads about children and they're really beautiful. And so I'm going to be doing that. And that's my, that's my two new projects. <laughs>
1: Brilliant. Well, they both sound like really great um, projects. Um, so thanks very much again for being with us, Vivi, and thank you uh, listeners for listening. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser, and today we had Vivi Lax talking to us about her new book, White Chapel Noise, Jewish Immigrant Life in Yiddish Song and Verse, London, 1884 to 1914, published by Wayne State University Press. In
0: 2018. Thanks very much.
1: Thank
0: you. Thank you. you.